This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the book of Esther, and today we're in chapter 2. The story of Esther worried the early church and even some more recent theologians. How could a book of the Bible not mention God by name? And also, how can a book of the Bible, God's holy word, contain such spicy content and negative examples? God inspired this record of real events, and he also inspired the author to write it just as he did, to remind us that a silent God is not an absent God, and more importantly, to remind us that God is faithful at all times, even when we can't see the final outcome. Those facts make life today worth living too. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Now, let me fill you in on some historical details here between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther so that we can get situated contextually here and we can see how God moved the pieces on that board so that His sovereign will and loving will in His promises to His people would be Fulfilled Because remember, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one we sing about, came from that line, the line of the Jews. Now, five years has have elapsed between chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. In that period of time, Ahasuerus, the king of the Persians, attempted to invade Europe, but suffered an embarrassing defeat at the Battle of Salamis. Now, on that day, in 480 B.C., the Greek navy led by General Themistocles sunk 300 Persian ships. Now, the, the king of Persia reportedly watched the whole thing in a makeshift throne set up on a hill. After that defeat, he returned to Asia and left his general and cousin Mardonius behind in Athens. But the Greek resistance led by Spartans, Athenians, and Corinthians killed this man, Mardonius, here at the Battle of Plataea in 479 B.C. And after that... Xerxes, same man as Ahasuerus, made no further attempt to invade the West. And that is the beginning of the fall of the Medo-Persian Empire, which happened 149 years later when Alexander of Macedon, also known as the Great, conquered the world superpower. Now, the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, verse 6, talks about that transfer of power in prophetic form. Now, the reason I'm giving all of these details, church, is that I want you to see how God orchestrated all of the circumstances and moved in the heart of a godless monarch and his advisors in order to elevate a Jewish young woman to prominence in a foreign land. And the reason for that is is not that she could get all the accolades, but that God will be glorified and exalted because of his hand of providence. The Lord's purpose was obviously to fulfill every one of His promises to the Jewish people. He made them promises of future glory, and therefore we see how that takes place in history in the book of Esther. So let's unpack the next scene here of this book, chapter 2, to see what the text teaches us about the providence of God. So first let me show you the plan, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 of the book of Esther. Now, after these things, the Bible says, now, after these things, what things? The decree that the king gave in order to dethrone Vashti and uh, his botched attempt to invade the Greek city-states and all of these things. After these things, when the anger of the king Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti 
in what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants, who served him, said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now, what we have here, church, in this part of the story is a demoralized king, a humiliated and embarrassed monarch here who now longs for the company of his favorite wife. What a guy. He longs for the company of Vashti, but he realized, okay, I made a mistake. So there's regret here. He regretted the decision, but remember, according to Persian law, he was not allowed to go back because according to that law, once the king made a decree, uh, there was no turning back. But he finally realized, okay, I made a terrible mistake here that was fueled by alcohol and anger. And what we learn here right from the beginning of the story is that outbursts of anger, outbursts of rage usually lead to bad decisions because even though someone who is acting out in unholy anger may not be filled with wine, they are intoxicated by self-centeredness. And that's what we see here. This man, King Ahasuer, is now regretting the fact that he made a hasty decision based on the advice of yes men, of men who just were out for themselves. But the Bible instructs us how to deal appropriately with frustration, and that is not how to deal with frustration. Ahasuerus wanted nothing to do with God. But still, by divine providence, his emotional state set the stage for the protagonist and her father figure to enter the narrative here. And now when I say protagonist, make a note that I'm using lowercase p, because the real protagonist of the story here is God, uppercase p, the protagonist, the one behind the scenes moving all the pieces in order to accomplish his purpose. So what God is doing here in this situation, using this man's emotional wreck, he is setting the stage for us to understand the story. And now, seeking to comfort the king, and likely afraid of revenge if Vashti were to be reinstated to the throne, Xerxes' attendants here devised a clever plan that promoted an empire-wide beauty contest. You understand that? The advisors went to the king, and their thought process was like, man, if we allow Vashti to come back to the throne here, she's going to order our execution. So let's, let's advise the king quickly to devise a clever plan. Again, God is behind the scenes here, orchestrating the whole thing. And the interesting part of the story is that the new queen, who would actually occupy the position of favorite wife or chief concubine, remember, the king was not really fond of monogamy. Okay, so the new queen would come from the people, not from the palace. So this is the American idol of the Persian Empire here, or, or the Bachelor, or the Bachelorette, however those shows are called. Now, the search would require the appointment of a provincial overseer. Remember, the text says that. The advice was appoint overseers, and the reason for that is very simple. Not every family would volunteer their daughters to the officials of the king. I mean, I know that that's the case for me. In order to get to my daughter, you'll have to deal with me first. And that's the thing here. That's why they had to appoint overseers over every province. Now, another item of divine providence here that I want you to see is that a new eunuch 
is in the story now, a guy by the name of Haggai. We didn't meet him in the first chapter. He is now the head of the eunuchs here by divine providence because he plays an important part in the life of the heroine of the story. And speaking of her, let's meet the future Miss Persia. Now, God placed the main character of this story in that culture not a day sooner and not a day later than her appointed time. We need to understand that. God is always on time. His timing is always perfect. And he appointed her to come to the story at the right time to serve as an agent of divine providence. In fact, you're going to hear me say this word a lot during our study of the book of Esther because that is the key concept of the entire book, the providence of God, the God who is working behind the scenes, not miraculously, but in this particular case, providentially. And he is now providentially setting up the story so that Esther will raise to prominence to serve as an agent of divine providence. She plays a heroic role in history, not just in the story, but in history in general. She is revered by the Jews. She is revered by us believers in Christ. But like every other biblical hero, with the exception of Christ, she displays character flaws. Is that understood? So this is not a hagiographical book. And the author writes nothing but positive things about the main character of the story. Now, this is clearly not the case. Esther wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. She had character flaws, which is actually a good comfort for us. Because when we read about biblical characters that had character flaws like you and me, we identify with them. And not only does she identify with fallen humanity, but also shows us what applied enabling grace looks like. The reason we know that is because divine grace is a concept. It's an abstract concept. But now when we see divine grace being applied in the life of someone, we see, oh, I see how God works. That is the result of enabling grace, equipping grace, working in the life of a flawed human being just like me. Therefore, there is hope for me. You see, God didn't choose her because of her alleged excellent moral character. And again, she was a woman of her culture, a pagan culture, a culture that didn't value God's view of marriage. Does that sound familiar? So what we have here is a flawed character, a flawed heroine that is chosen by God, not because of her imperfections, of course, but in spite of her sin. And that is the case for all of us. I want you to know that God didn't place you in your cultural context because of your alleged flawless representation of his character. Because if that was the case, none of us would have ever qualified to serve God. But exclusively because of his grace, you see, he recruits imperfect people to do his perfect work. Only God can do that. Only a God of grace can do that. A God who equips the people he calls to be Agents of divine providence here. Now, this is not a new idea. Paul explains that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 to 29. Church, this is a pastor, a church planter, telling the church, you're not an impressive bunch. <laughs> Imagine that if your pastor tells you, uh, you're not a very impressive bunch. God has chosen you not because of anything you can accomplish, but exclusively because of His grace. And this is what we see in the life of this good-looking gal, Esther. 
Now, you and I are not the heroes of any biblical narrative, will never be, because the Bible is complete. The Bible is not still being written. So God has concluded the canon of Scripture. You and I are never going to be the heroes of a biblical narrative. But I assure you that God wants to use you as an agent of His perfect will. I assure you on the authority of the Word of God. You know why I know that? Because the risen Lord commanded His followers to make disciples of every nation. That is in Matthew 28, verse 19. We studied that passage not too long ago. So if you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you have one goal in life. Your primary goal in life is to glorify God by making disciples of every nation. He could have taken you to heaven at the moment you believed in Christ. But the reason why you're still here is to be an agent of divine providence to other people so that other people can hear from you that Jesus saves. And those who are faithful to this call, God calls through his word, how beautiful are the feet of these people. So if you are faithful to the call, if you're a believer in Christ, how beautiful are your feet because you bring good news according to Romans 10 verse 15. You say, wait a minute, is that a compliment? (laughs) Well, yeah, this is the Bible's way of saying you are blessed beyond words. You are blessed beyond words that God has entrusted His perfect message, His saving message to people like you and me who are not perfect, who are flawed human beings, who are fallen human beings, redeemed sinners who one day will be glorified. And to better understand God's providence behind the scenes here, back to the book of Esther, I'm going to give you three aspects of her life. There are more that we will uncover and unpack as we go through this book. But in this introductory scene where she steps into the stage, as it were, there are three aspects of her life that teach us many things about the providence of God. First of all, I want to share with you her fate, verses 5 through 7. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Uh, There's a lot here to unpack, church. First of all, Mordecai's great-grandfather had been taken captive to Babylon, which made him a fourth-generation exile. Now, if you need to read more about this, go to your Bible, turn left a few books, and go to the second book of Chronicles toward the end of that book, and it'll tell you how that invasion took place and how the Jews were exiled to Babylon. So in that event, Mordecai's great-grandfather was a part of that crowd. Now, his family line traces him to King Saul, that is in 2 Samuel 9, 1, which reveals that he had noble but not royal blood. Okay, Even though he belongs to the line of the first king, King Saul, he is not supposed to, be, to have royal blood because the royal line in Israel comes from Judah, not from Benjamin. Here's another detail about this man's life. The absence of a wife for him here in a narrative caused some people to believe he may have been a low-level eunuch which would explain why he had access to the king's harem. Again, we will verify that in a moment. But uh, I want you to know that the name Esther means star in the old Persian language, but we already have determined that the star of the show is God, not Esther. 
It may have been that her name is a reference to the Babylonian deity Ishtar, whom the Bible refers in Hebrew as Ashtoreth, but we know that her Hebrew name means myrtle. But the point here of the story is that both her orphan status and her physical attractiveness serve a divine purpose, which the author clarifies as the story develops. So even though she is beautiful of face and form, she, which means, church, she is the looker of the family here. She was a good-looking gal, a gorgeous-looking gal. She's not the star of the story. This is not about her. This is all about God. And an interesting point here is that when Scripture describes the physical attributes of biblical characters, it always draws attention to God, not to them. There's a purpose behind their physical features there. For example, you know Sarah and Rebecca, the matriarchs of the Jews. The Bible tells them that they were beautiful women. Genesis 12 says Sarah was beautiful. The Bible says the same thing about Rebecca in Genesis 26, a fact that led their husbands to lie because they were afraid for their own lives. And therefore, we see how God develops their character through that one observation that they were beautiful women. And Saul was handsome, according to 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, a detail that confirms that God evaluates by the heart, not by physical appearance. And in the case of Esther here, she had both form and face going for her, which means, church, that God arranged her genetics in a way that would produce features considered desirable in that culture. And the author reveals the divine purpose behind this arrangement of genetics to produce a beautiful woman. But before we even proceed to that point, I want you to be assured of one thing, that just like he did with the Jewish beautiful young woman here, God skillfully, precisely, sovereignly, and lovingly designed every molecule of your DNA, and as a result, church, you are wonderfully and fearfully made, according to Psalms 139, verse 14. You are fearfully and wonderfully made because God wove you together in your mother's womb. Therefore, every aspect of your physical appearance, every aspect of your physical features, your, your ethnicity, the way you look, reflects the creativity, the artistry, and the beauty of your Creator whose image you bear. Even if you don't think you meet a particular standard of cultural beauty, you are a reflection of a creative God who arranged your DNAs just like He did with Esther. He arranged your DNA in such a way to produce features in you that you will carry for eternity. And you always reflect the beauty of that Savior. Now, in a fallen world, obviously, our bodies suffer the consequences of sin, of aging, of disease, and sometimes self-abuse. But thankfully, one day our bodies, the bodies of born-again believers in Christ, will be glorified in church. Do I need to repeat this? God does not make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes. He made you the way you are for His honor and for His glory so that you will be an agent of divine providence in your own context, not in Susa, not in Persia, but in 21st century America. So the texture of your hair or the quantity of your hair, your height, the length of your limbs and your nose, as well as your gender beautifully represents His providence to you. So, guys, you will always look like a dude in eternity. You will reflect biblical masculinity, the creativity of God, 
in heaven forever. And ladies, you will display your dazzling beauty as a glorified woman forever. You will display glorified womanhood in heaven, which means no one is ever born in a wrong body. That is a cultural myth from the pit of hell. But that's, uh, we're talking about Esther here. After Esther's fate, I want you to see her favor, also divine providence. Verses 8 through 9. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so he quickly provided her with cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. So again, we see God's divine providence here on display. The author doesn't specify whether Esther volunteered for this beauty contest here. We can only assume that she was forced to go because as soon as the guards looked at her and they realized, okay, this is a beautiful young woman, we're taking her. Now, Haggai knew the king's desire, of course. He was close to the king, so he knew the qualities that he desired in a replacement queen. And evidently, Esther had those features. Not only her physical appearance, but evidently her personality. In fact, we will see how her personality was pleasant throughout the story here. But the point is exactly not to idolize her. This story is not about Esther's supposed perfection. She is violating Jewish law. Not only that, she violated God's desire for marriage. She is engaging in sexual immorality. She will, at least, as the story develops. But the point is here, God is not blessing her because of these things, church, but in spite of these things, because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But after her fate and favor, I want you to see her future. Verses 10 and 11. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the heron to learn how Esther was and how she fared. And here's why people speculate that Mordecai was probably a eunuch, because he had access to the harem. Now, he suspected danger if Esther revealed her Jewishness. Now, the reason for that is that there was already hostilities and animosity brewing with the people of the empire against the Jews. That is why later on, as another decree will be issued here, a lot of the people have no problem being a part of an attempted genocide, an attempted holocaust. But Ezra 4 verse 6 says this, In the reign of Ahasuerus, that's the, the man we're talking about here, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So there was already, ten already tension brewing there. But here's a quality in the life of Esther here. Even though she embraced the vanity of ancient Persian culture, she had a solid upbringing. She is loyal to Mordecai. She could have easily said, you don't tell me what to do. I'm going to be queen. I tell you what to do. You're telling me, you're giving me orders? Who are you? Don't you know who you're talking about? Now, see, fame didn't get to her head. Now, most of us would have been tempted to think we're the big deal now. That's not the case with Esther. She is still displaying that submissiveness, that obedience to her father figure. And again, the fact that she had special treatment in the harem may explain the fact that Mordecai was able to get regular updates from her. It may have been part of, of Haggai giving her favor, saying, sure, you can give your, your, or your uncle here regular updates. This is another act of divine providence. Um, that God is preparing her for her role as an agent 
of deliverance, which would happen nine years later. You see, when we look at the chronology of the book here, we know that the deliverance that she will be a part of, the deliverance of the Jews, will not happen for the next nine years of her life. In the meantime, she would be used as a sexual object and share her, her husband with at least 300 other women in the, in the harem here. But obviously, this is not God's plan for marriage. If you are reading this book and you say, wait a minute, why is all the filth in here? Should we sanitize the book? No, we take the book at face value and we understand God's character in this, church. What God is doing is not blessing sin. Of course, He never does. He is simply allowing human nature to follow its normal fallen patterns in order to fulfill His providence and to demonstrate His sovereign purposes. This is why God is permitting all of this to happen, because He wants to display His sovereign purposes, His providence in delivering the Jews and fulfilling His promises to them and to us, because from that same family line, the Messiah was born. Christ came from that line in order to show, to display His grace to the world. He works even in a culture who wants nothing to do with God. So if you say, Pastor, I am really concerned about our culture. I don't know where our culture is going. Rest assured, friend, God knows what He's doing. He is active. God is still in control. He is still in charge. He is still calling the shots. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast has provided you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.